to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Gladesville, where we dig in a little more depth into the passage that we looked at on Sunday. My name's Mandy Curley. And I'm Seb. It's great to have you back as we start digging into our next series on Exodus, The Way Out. Over the last two weeks of the holidays, we've had our first two sermons on Exodus. We looked first at Exodus 1 and 2. And then at Exodus 3 and 4, Seb's brought both those messages to us and we've clearly seen God at work through his people as we've seen that the main character of Exodus is not in fact Moses, uh, but it is God who acts to save his people. So thanks so much, Seb, for opening God's word for us. Uh, You're welcome. It's a privilege. So we're back on the podcast again. What are we going to cover this afternoon? Well, we thought we'd pick up on three things. Uh, So firstly... Part of the podcast aim is to help us to be good Bible readers. So we're going to pick up on just the big story, a bit of the context as we start growth groups, uh, just a reminder of how does this connect to Genesis, but how does this also point us forward to the big story of the whole Bible as well. So we're going to go uh, a little bit on, down that route. And then the second point will be on uh, the appearance of the angel of the Lord, picking yep. up on the start of chapter three and just thinking a bit about that figure in the Old Testament in particular uh, and the revealing of God's names, just a, a little bit, uh, one or two points there. And then the third one was a special request uh, from someone in Evening Church, and it was to revisit that very peculiar passage in chapter 4, verses 24 to 26 at the lodging place, uh, where there's that uh, scene where the Lord seeks to kill someone. Okay, that gives us an awful lot to cover here. So first one, we're going to jump straight in as we look a bit more at the, the context and the bigger picture. So what did we have there? Yeah, so thinking uh, just big picture storyline of the Bible, uh, remembering, okay, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's a sequel. It's a follow-up to Genesis. It falls into the first five books of the Bible, which get called the Pentateuch. Uh, But thinking theologically, how does Genesis start? Um, It starts with the creation of the world and we meet the creator, the Lord. uh, in uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, throughout Genesis 1 and 2, we get the good language, the orderly language, the life that God is a God of life. Then we hit Genesis 3, and that's where things go wrong. The sin, the fall, the judgment, uh, death is introduced to the world. And there's a key verse in Genesis 3, which we'll read now. It's in verse 15. Okay, so this is the Lord speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Great. So that sort of picks up in the context of uh, the judgment passage uh, on the serpent and the woman and the man, uh, a little bit about what to expect. Uh, It's it's sometimes called the the first gospel, the proto-gospel. But it's we're keeping an eye out from that point on for the seed, the serpent crusher. Mm. Uh, And then... Genesis 4 to 11 are the sort of downward spiral. We get the first murder, we get the flood and the ark, and then we get the Tower of Babel. But then in the big picture of Genesis, Genesis 12 is the turning point. And so we might read those first three verses, which really are the plot line for the whole Pentateuch. Some would say that I shouldn't even have to look up Genesis 12, 1 to 3. <laughs> uh, so the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Fantastic. So Genesis 12, we see God calls Abram 
And from Abram's family line, there's going to be a nation that comes out of it. There'll be a land that's been promised to them and blessing will come uh, not only to that nation, but to the the nations beyond as well. Uh, From that point on, the rest of Genesis is a story of Abraham's story. uh, And then we're waiting for his son and that takes a long time. But (laughs) Isaac eventually comes. uh, And then we have Jacob and uh, Jacob has 12 sons, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and one of those sons gets betrayed and sent off to Egypt, Joseph. And that's where the end of Genesis really ends up uh, with the whole family in Egypt. Uh, and things are quite good because they get rescued from famine and, and from being wiped out. Uh, and that's sort of the background. That's the sort of story up till Exodus. Then as we get to Exodus, it's quite interesting that straight away thinking that Genesis is named Genesis and we've got all these genealogies that mark Genesis for us. Well, we start Exodus with a genealogy, with a bit of a family line, and it just reminds us this story is picking up the story about that family. Uh, So verses 1 to 7 of Exodus, uh, which we won't read now, but uh, remember as well that then immediately we get that repetition of uh, the field and multiply and increasing mm. in number. So we go from kind of the 12 sons who get mentioned to the 70 uh, plus Joseph's family who are already in Egypt to then suddenly they really do grow into a numerous people. And, uh, and it picks up, remember, that creation language of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in Genesis. And here it's kind of the land, fill the land, mm. um, which is a creation blessing. So we've got that in the background but it's perceived as a political curse. And so it's not good news for the king of Egypt, who's concerned that 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 could be bad news for the Egyptians. Uh, And it's interesting because right at this point where we suddenly there's great fruitfulness, uh, remembering the the, uh, tracking with the seed promise, well, here's lots of babies being produced, uh, but this king sets himself up as the anti-creator type. Mm. And so he wants to actually kill the Hebrew babies, kill the seed. And so God prepares one seed in particular, a particular uh, child, and our eyes are kind of focused on him in Exodus 2. Yeah. And it's really as we see that picture that comes through, it's that really clear thing that so while Exodus is a book on its own, it's a book that makes sense in the context. And Mm. that's why it's so helpful having spent over the last three or four years all that time in Genesis. And so it shouldn't surprise us as we read through Exodus that there's lots of things that hark back to what we've already seen in Genesis and that it should remind us of, oh, I've seen that before, I've seen that happen, or what connection do I draw with what's happened before in Genesis while I'm here in Exodus because it's the continuing story of the one great God who is revealing himself through his word. Yes, and, and there's a unity to it and there's a diversity as well, but it's it's rich as we sort of, mm. uh, the more we press into it, the more we realise, oh, there's layers and there's things I haven't spotted before. Uh, And in the Exodus plot, we're getting set up for, well, this one child, he's going to be a saviour and a rescuer, uh, and he's going to come up against this unnamed Pharaoh who then dies and the other one's basically the same. Uh, He's forgotten about, forgotten about Israel, forgotten about the Lord. He he doesn't, it's interesting in Exodus 1, the Pharaoh acts shrewdly, which is a sort of the wisdom language, Mm. and yet we're seeing all the time it's the opposite. He doesn't fear the Lord at all, and uh, and he's going to be shown shown to be a foolish person in the process. Uh, But all the while we're being pointed forward to the big plot line of the Bible, uh, and so the Moses story uh, reminds us of another baby who came under threat uh, at the start of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And uh, we see that there's this opposition to the one who God is raising up to rescue his people. 
uh, with a very similar story with Herod. Uh, but also, um, Jesus himself picks up on some of the language of what he's come to do. So we might have a quick read of John 12 and just hear some of the language that gets picked up in the New Testament about Jesus' mission and uh, how he crushes the serpent. So this is Jesus speaking. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So there we've got the cross being a central event, but it also ha- someone's being sent out of the world, mm. the ruler of this world, and that's a, the language for Satan that gets picked up elsewhere as well. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, you get the, the little g, God of this age, um, uh, who's likely to be Satan. And also uh, in 1 John 3 verse 8, uh, there's a, the language of what did Jesus come to do and achieve? In 1 John 3 uh, verse 8, we see the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Exactly. So as we hear the Moses story and uh, him uh, and the opposition of Pharaoh against God and his people and his purposes, uh, we're being pointed forward to another cosmic battle that's going on as well where God's people uh, are being opposed by Satan. And, uh, and so we see that plot line fulfilled, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so that's actually one of the examples of where we think about things in a biblical theological way. Because uh, when we're here in Exodus, we remember where Exodus happens, like obviously a long way before the cross. Uh, but as we see the way that God works in and through Moses and raises Moses up and uses him, uh, it's actually pointing us forward and helping to prepare us for who Jesus is and what he will come and do and the way that God is going to work through Jesus to bring Mm. about the ultimate salvation, which is the salvation of the world from sin. Exactly. Uh, Which brings us into our second kind of point uh, where we're looking at the angel of the Lord and the name that the Lord reveals. Uh, And so we might start off by reading Exodus 3 uh, verses 1 and 2. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Great. So we see the Lord takes initiative uh, to reach out to Moses, attract him in, but he does so, at least we're told at first in verse 2, that it's the angel of the Lord who appeared, uh, which just remind kind of uh, whenever the angel of the Lord uh, comes up, that raises some questions for us. Who is this angel of the Lord figure? Uh, particularly in this passage where then God also pulls out, uh, calls out from the bush. Um, and I'm, I mentioned in a sermon, Genesis 16 uh, was another occasion Uh, of a couple in Genesis where the angel of the Lord uh, shows up. So we might pick up on that passage with Hagar. So the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. 
You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. Great. Uh, so there, there we've uh, got another time where the angel turns up and just the way Hagar speaks to this angel, remembering that angel just means messenger uh, in, in Hebrew, so it could also be the messenger of the Lord, but she says to him, you are the God who sees me. Uh, so we're, we're immediately kind of thinking, okay, this is not just an angel. Another time where this happens is in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. So picking up Joshua chapter 5 from verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, so we get similar language to uh, the appearance of the angel in Exodus 3. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. But just keep in mind right at the back of the Bible in Revelation, um, this is what happens to John in his Revelation. Uh, Revelation 19 verse 9, I'll read. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Uh, so there's an example where an angel is not to be worshipped. Mm. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're seeing examples of where the angel is the Lord, uh, but also in other parts of the Old Testament, uh, we see an angel where it's not quite clear. It, mm. it, maybe it is just a messenger of the Lord. Uh, and you get one example in Luke chapter 2, 9 and 10. Uh, and the reason I bring this one up is sometimes it gets suggested that, oh, this angel of the Lord figure is just Jesus popping up in different places in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is just sort of one, uh, at least one example of a counter reason for why it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, so Luke chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Uh, so this is at least one example of where the and uh, yeah, the angel of the Lord can't be uh, the character of Jesus because Jesus has just been born and, and this angel is telling the shepherds that message. Uh, all of this, though, gets us to think, what what is it when the Lord is appearing? What is it when God appears? And so to give you some language um, that might be helpful theologically to think about that, uh, the theme of when God appears is often called a theophany. And so theos meaning God and phinos is a Greek word for uh, appearance. And so it's an appearance of God, which is interesting because uh, theologically God is spirit. He's mm. invisible. And we heard a little bit yesterday about how God's other, he's holy, he's transcendent. Um, and yet when God appears, he's drawing near to us. And that falls under the big sort of category of God's revelation. Uh, he speaks to us, but at various points, he also reveals himself in a visible way. 
Uh, and whenever he does that, that's him drawing close. And so the word for kind of drawing close is his imminence. It's not just he's not just a transcendent God, he's also the imminent God who graciously wants to relate to us. The other thing to say is uh, what we notice in Genesis and then Exodus and Exodus 3 is one of these progressive points is God reveals himself in a progressive way. Mm. Uh, and so one of the things we want to be careful about if we're good Bible readers and teachers is um, to reflect that that the Trinity, God doesn't just turn up and fully reveal himself as the Father, Son and Holy Spirit um, from the get-go even though you can see those building blocks being developed across the Old Testament as well. Um, so I say that to be careful in the language that we talk about. Um, when you see the angel of the Lord figure who is the Lord himself, uh, or these these kind of things that do help us point forward in a foreshadowy kind of way uh, to the coming of Christ and to God the Father sending his Son as a visible representative, as as God's image, mm. um, uh, and and so it's sort of the, the other danger is you don't want to undermine the uniqueness of the incarnation. Mm. That when God the Son takes on flesh, that is a unique moment in redemptive history. And uh, so we might just quickly read uh, Hebrews one one to three, which picks up. So Hebrews one one to three. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So all of these different appearances and the various ways in which God has revealed himself come to a climax in his son, mm. the Lord Jesus. And uh, in Exodus 3, though, there is, uh, a, there is progress being made in the way that the Lord reveals himself. And it's not just in this figure of the angel, the messenger of the Lord appearing. It's in the name that he gives Moses himself. And so a couple of quick points on the name that the um, that we learn about in Exodus 3. Uh, firstly, that God's name is an actor of revelation. Mm. He's, it's very hard to relate to someone who you don't even know their name. Um, and yet at the same time, the language of God God in the Bible, um, sometimes it is the, the word we use, G-O-D, God, uh, is the Hebrew Elohim, sort of generic sort of word for God. Um, but here we're being given something um, more than that. It's it's God revealing, I am who I am, and and then that language of that being built off that verb of the verb to be, and and that gets us asking a question. Well, who does it mean for the Lord to be? I am, or I will be, or um, which is something we explored a little bit yesterday, and uh, that name, the Lord, uh, comes up. A lot in the Old Testament, which is what we'd expect. Uh, I think it comes up 6,828 times. Just once or twice. Yep. And then sometimes in the short form uh, of just Yah, so um, 49 times for that. And I mentioned this is sometimes we're not sure how to pronounce it exactly. The reason, the kind of background reason for that is that the Jews um, 
got very cautious about using the name of the Lord out of reverence and not wanting to say the Lord's name in vain. And so they would replace the name, proper name that God had given to Moses here with the word Adonai, uh, which just means my Lord. Uh, and then it, it was never really pronounced out loud. And so instead what we were left with is just the four consonants in Hebrew, uh, Y-H-W-H, um, and there weren't any vowels uh, at, at that point. And that has led to a bit of kind of questions as to, well, how do you pronounce mm. uh, the Lord's name? And so we can take a good guess that it's Yahweh, uh, although it is worth pointing out as well that there was a significant mistranslation that happened historically uh, with the vows in the 16th century where we got the word Jehovah from uh, is um, almost certainly uh, a misunderstanding of how the vows were being added uh, to those consonants and in that case it was Y-V-W-H and so that's where the Jehovah language comes up as well. So sometimes that's where you get the Jehovah's yes. Witnesses yep. uh, basing that the name of the Lord is on that too. I guess one of the things that stands out to me is significant in kind of the way that God reveals himself to Moses by revealing his name is actually the fact that his name is revelatory of who he is. Mm. So even in that whole, you know, whether you go that I am or I will, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, God is a God who acts consistent with his character. Mm. And so his name actually reveals to us who he is and what he is like, uh, which I think is part of the amazingness of this and so there's a, there's a real intimacy mm. in what happens between God and Moses there but also the whole thing that when we when we know who God's when we know God's name we know who God is yes um, yeah. he is the God who is consistent with what he says like I will be who I will be he's the God who has revealed himself as one who is a promise keeping um, forgiving merciful God and he acts in a way that is consistent with his character mm. and so everything we see about what he does is consistent with who he is mm. and it's just one of the beauties of knowing the name of the Lord and it also picks up on just the context of what's going on which is we're going to see the Lord reveal his name mm. in his actions in everything that's coming up as well uh, which is worth saying because there's endless writings on these verses uh, on the name of the Lord. And sometimes you end up down this route where it's very philosophical. It's all about, you know, all about God being the, the first cause and, and the one who just exists and the one who uh, nothing comes, the un, unmoved sort of thing. The unmoved mover. Mover, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and you sort of get completely detached from the narrative that's going mm. on in Exodus where we're going to find out who the Lord is in his actions as he reveals his character. So his name's not just his label, it's it's who he is and what he, what he does and his commitment to his promises too. And I guess at this point it is another um, sort of thing for those who are thinking about having children and then get to have that um, opportunity to name children. Names are really significant. Mm. And so this is an opportunity to think through, well, what are you going to – because there can be a prophetic nature of the name that you call someone for them to grow into uh, what that is. And so, yeah, choose your names carefully. We see that, don't we? In our culture, we sort of completely, you know, you get, call your kid an apple sort of thing. <laughs> it's a, we've, lost, we've lost a connectedness to, in, in the Bible terms, names are very significant to that person living out their name as well. And the other quick thing to say is because we've got L-O-R-D, Lord, 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 one potential downside for that rather than is that we just think of 
the Lord's name as a title mm. rather than as a gracious revelation of who he is. And so it's worth kind of just as you read your English version of the Old Testament, when you see L-O-R-D in capitals, remembering, oh, that's his covenantal name. Mm. That's the name, that's his special, unique name that he's revealed to remind us uh, of his promises. He's a promise-keeping God and also that he acts in accord with who he is as well. Mm. So that kind of brings us through the first two points that we were going to cover. And then the third one, by special request, um, you know, Seb, you told us that not many of us will will hear much of a sermon on Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. Uh, So should I read that as we dig in to think about what is this lodging place all about? That'd be great. Uh, Maybe pick it up from verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Okay. Now, this is a tricky passage. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the? Yeah, it's straight. I mean, we've just spent the last two chapters being prepared for, I mean, Moses had every reason for why he didn't want to go to Egypt. And here it's looks like it was going to be a very short trip. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you had such promise for who Moses was going to be, what God was going to do through him. And then you're like... And now the Lord meets him and has a plot to kill him. Yes. So these are a few verses that immediately they should shock us. They should jar us. Uh, and and um, they should puzzle us as well uh, because I don't think we get a all of all of it neatly explained to us by the narrate. There's no narrator's comment that sort of really helps us understand some of the questions that are raised in these verses. Um, So here's just a couple of pointers, just uh, things to both appreciate about what does make this complex and then maybe some things that help us with the meaning as well. Um, Firstly, there's some translation issues. Um, So in the version that we just read from the NIV, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses. And there is a footnote in my NIV Bible that says Hebrew him uh, and was about to kill him. Uh, and that is true, that in the, in the Hebrew, it's the pronoun isn't actually assigned to anyone at that point. Uh, and so the NIV is interpreting it as probably Moses, uh, which probably does fit. Um, fit. Uh, it'd be unusual for it to be Gershom at this point and for him to be referred to as him, uh, Gershom, the firstborn son of Moses. But it, there's just ambiguity as to, mm. well, who are we talking about, given we have also just been talking about firstborn sons. Um, secondly is just what Zipporah does, how she knows what to do uh, and then what she does and then the language that she uses um, raises questions. Uh, and what does a bridegroom of blood mean? Yeah. Uh, and then there's also the language of feet as well. So uh, Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Um, and the feet language in is probably actually a Hebrew euphemism for uh, genitals, so it's probably actually the, the private parts of Moses. Um, although I can't remember if it's also either Moses or that may be another time where it's it's unclear. Is it Moses's son at that point as well? Who who's who get who 
who has the blood touch them. Mm. Um, in any case, it prompts us, that, um, probably the most helpful comment that we get put in brackets there at the end is, at the time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision, does tell us, okay, what is going on here. It sends us back to Genesis 17, uh, where God had made a covenant with Abraham related to the sign of that covenant. And so we'll hear a bit of that now. Okay, so from chapter 17, reading from verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so that taking that back to that's that's helpful background for what's mm. going on here in Exodus 4 because we have just spent two chapters being reminded that God is the God who is speaking to Moses, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of his covenant who hasn't forgotten his promises, especially not his promise to take his people into the land that had been promised to them. But the sign of that covenant was uh, that uh, every, circum- every, every Hebrew male would be circumcised. Mm-hmm. And there would also be a consequence for not uh, being obedient to the covenant, that that person who who wasn't circumcised would be cut off. He's broken the covenant. Um, and then in the context of a couple of things, uh, the Lord's just given three signs to Moses as he prepares him to go back to Egypt. Uh, remember his staff becoming a snake and then his, what was the second one? Yeah, hand, and? hand leprous coming out healed again. And then the third one is a promise of that the Nile water will be turned into blood uh, and so we get the introduction of the blood theme. And here, it's the Lord is um, angered by the sign of his covenant having not been obeyed. Uh, and we see blood is the thing that uh, is averts death, averts mm-hmm. danger. Um, and so I don't know if we're fully going to be able to unlock um, what are hard verses. Yeah, because we look at this and go, well, why hadn't Moses circumcised his son? 
It doesn't exactly. tell us. It doesn't tell us, but but we see the seriousness of, well, the Lord's just been talking about Israel being his firstborn son, and he's just been raising the stakes with, if Pharaoh doesn't let them go, then he's going to kill his firstborn son. And then kind of, that, that's, that's the two preceding verses. And then we move to, well, Moses, what about you as you go to represent me, the God who's faithful to his covenant and speak on behalf? What about your son? Mm. Uh, and so we, we can kind of appreciate a little bit of um, perhaps this, uh, the background for why the Lord is angered at this precise point. Uh, the one other kind of thing to throw out, or oh, two other things, uh, is remember as well the family line that uh, Moses comes from at the start of Exodus 2. We're told a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And so we have also been reminded that Moses comes from the Levites, who are going to be the priests of Israel. And when we get to the next book in the Bible, Leviticus, we'll see the significance of the blood and the sacrifices. Um, but also, the, he's not just from the priestly background. We're seeing in these this call narrative, he's also got the prophetic function. Mm. And with the prophetic calling also comes the character of the prophet who represents the Lord and his message. Um, the one other thing to throw out there, we won't look it up right now, but as a cross-reference, uh, Numbers 22 verses 9 to 23, uh, there's a curious incident with Balaam, the prophet, uh, who gets sent by the Lord, and uh, and we're told he's the son of Zippor, uh, which mm. just kind of raises our, our eyebrows. And uh, at just as he gets sent out in that narrative, um, the Lord is also strangely angered, and we don't know why, uh, but remember it's a donkey who sees the angel of the Lord, and uh, and that gets Balaam very upset. Uh, but it's just a curious little episode which seems to be a bit of a throwback to this one in the background as well. Yeah. So hopefully that gives us a little bit of context. We haven't been able to work out every single detail and neatly tie it all off with a bow, but we've helpfully been able to see that this is actually a passage, as you said at the beginning. It is supposed to stop us in our tracks and shock us and go, what's going on? This seems really strange. But we've also been able to see some connections with other things that have happened. Yes, and a really significant connection as well. If we ask the question of why is it here at this point, uh, I think one of the key functions is to um, prepare us for the Passover as well, uh, where once again the blood is going to avert the judgment of death. And so there's something also where it functions in a narrative in a, in a forward-looking way too. So thank you to our question asker. Uh, hopefully that's been a helpful exploration of this little section of Genesis. So uh, that's Sermon Seasonings for this week. Um, I've been Mandy. I've been Seb. Join us again in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I'll be talking with – actually, I won't be talking because I'll be on leave and Dave and Braden will be having a conversation about the Passover. <laughs>